Grab your seat. We are going to get started. We are continuing our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. If you've been with us over the past year and a half or so, year plus, you, you would know that. Um, so we're working our way verse by verse through this book. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14, that's where we find ourselves this morning. And we'll be looking at verses 20 through 25 together. And if you've been with us the past couple weeks, you know what we're going to be talking about today. And if you haven't been with us for the past couple weeks, I encourage you uh, to go back and listen to those messages as they'll provide some, some framework for you on, on this issue that we'll be talking about today. We're in the middle of a chapter where Paul is dealing with the issue of the use of tongues in the church. And as we get started today, I want to remind you of the story of the Tower of Babel, way back in Genesis chapter 11. If you're not familiar with that story, that is where God confused the languages of men. Uh, prior to Genesis chapter 11, there was one universal language that all men spoke. But God confounded and confused the languages at the Tower of Babel when he saw the evil uh, in the heart of men. And I mention that because the issue of language as a means to man's self-promotion and as a tool of our enemy, it goes back a really long way. And in this same vein, the only other biblical incident that can rival the confusion of language at Babel is the confusion of tongues at Corinth. And so I think those two go hand in hand. And this church at Corinth had so confused this issue of languages that God had given as a gift. They had so counterfeited it. They had so substituted the reality for a satanic deception that Paul had to write an entire chapter just to deal with this issue. We've already seen much of it. We've already looked at the first 19 verses. But what we get to today is really the crux of the matter. I believe in this short section of, of Scripture that, that we get not only the key verse, which we'll see is verse 22, but we get the key word for how tongues relate or don't relate to the church today. So I've titled this message, The Explicit Purpose. The Explicit Purpose. And I give it that title because last week we saw the intended purpose of both spiritual gifts and Sunday gatherings. And how they are all about edification and communication and understanding. But after laying that groundwork last week, in the verses we're going to look at today, in verses 20 through 25, Paul gives the explicit purpose once and for all related to the spiritual gifts of tongues. And I will admit that the word explicit in my title is somewhat interesting. Because explicit means to be stated clearly and in detail, leaving no room for confusion or doubt. And yet there seems to be much confusion related to the doctrine of tongues. And where there's not confusion, there is at least a little bit of doubt on how they work and who they're for. So it seems anything but explicit. In fact, I was reading a blog post this week about tongues on the um, on the conservative Christian website, crosswalk.com. And someone had written in, confused about tongues, and so they were asking 
crosswalk for help. I'm just going to let that last statement stand on its own. As much as I would like to provide commentary on someone asking crosswalk for help, I'm going to refrain myself. But anyway, the author of this blog, who is not charismatic, by the way, and, and who, for his own sake, I'll leave nameless, he decided it was an important enough question that he would try to answer. The only problem is he didn't answer. He responded, but he didn't answer. And because I like you, I'm going to read it to you. <laughs> Here is this author's response to someone asking about the validity of tongues today. He said, and I quote, As much as I love harboring a shamelessly wide-ranging panoply of opinions, when it comes to speaking in tongues, I have nothing to say. I'm not very comfortable passing judgment on the validity of the spiritual experiences of others. If in what they're experiencing as the throes of possession by the Holy Spirit, a person starts speaking in tongues, then okay. I mean, obviously, right, on the surface of it, speaking in tongues seems a tad odd. Why would God think it a great idea to inspire people to say stuff that virtually no one understands? Does the Alpha and Omega of all that ever is or ever will be have nothing better to do than possess simple mortals to talk funny? Be like driving a brand new car backwards down the freeway. Sure, you could do it, but why would you? Now, if the Holy Spirit made a person who had never in their life spoken a single word of English suddenly start spouting passages of Hamlet, I'd fall into full gaga mode. But if a person is so apparently filled with the Holy Spirit that all they can do is talk spontaneously generated gibberish, pfft. So here's what I think about tongues. I knew I had an opinion on it. It could be legitimate. It could be as nonsensical as the sounds it makes people make. God works in strange and mysterious ways, right? Why couldn't one of those ways be to make people speak, speak in a language that's exclusively between him and them? Maybe it's like the secret language of twins. God connects the Holy Spirit inside someone, and the two of them start talking so exuberantly that the host person can't do anything but bubble over with the no time to translate extra. That totally makes sense. And that was his response. Which is maybe the worst response I have ever read. I mean, he has no idea. I mean, seriously, man, maybe you should have just taken a pass on that question. But, but I, I digress. So my, my point in reading that to you is not to make fun of the author. I mean, I really want to. <laughs> but I promise you that's not my point. It, I promise, it really isn't. My point is... Here is someone in the non-charismatic world who is supposed to be some sort of authority, and he is just as confused on the issue as anyone. So how can I say that God lays out an explicit purpose for tongues when so many people, even those who write for popular Christian websites, don't understand this issue? And to that, I would simply say, just because there is confusion or doubt does not mean God hasn't been explicit. Believe the word of God is quite clear, and when rightly divided, the purpose of tongues become quite clear. Because as we've talked about for weeks, there is a purpose for tongues, and it is an explicit purpose. It's just not for us and, and not for today. I hope to prove that to you this morning. So let's go ahead and look at, at it together. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, starting in verse 20. We'll read down through verse 25. 
Bible says, Brethren, be not children in understanding. Howbeit in malice be ye children, but in understanding be men. In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that will they not hear me, saith the Lord. Wherefore tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. If therefore the whole church be come together into one place, and all speak with tongues, and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, will they not say that ye are mad? But if all prophesy, and there come in one that believeth not, or one unlearned, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all. And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask him to direct our time together this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we, we do love you. Uh, we are thankful to be gathered together this morning. Uh, we're thankful to, to do it uh, under the preaching of your word. And so, Lord, we're so thankful for the word that you've given us uh, where you do make confusing things clear. If we're willing to dive in, if we're willing to do the work, if we're really to, willing to study to show ourselves approved, uh, rightly dividing the word of truth. So, Lord, I pray that you teach us today. I pray that you take this confusing topic and bring about some clarity. I pray that you use it in our lives, uh, both, both personally and, and doctrinally in a teaching aspect. And so, Lord, I pray that in all of it, what is said is true to your word. First and foremost, I pray then that it is glorifying to you. I pray that you speak your words freely uh, and that your Holy Spirit has free reign to do whatever he will in our lives this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I've already stated, I believe the verses that we just read together gives God's explicit purpose for the use of tongues. And the purpose of the gift of foreign languages or tongues, that will make sense to you if you've already been here these past couple weeks, was as a sign. We read that explicitly in verse 22. And I, I will take today to explain what that means. But this is an exceedingly vital, uh, important area of study. Because if we can finally, once and for all, determine and explain the purpose of the gift, that it is very easy to evaluate what's going on today as relative to the gift. And it's very easy to evaluate any time in history relative to that gift, for that matter. It either fits the biblical purpose or it does not. And consequently, we can determine whether it's legitimate or not. And that's the route Paul takes in our text this morning. And he begins by challenging them on the issue. And so our first point for study and the first thing Paul does in this section of scripture is he provides a call to maturity a call to maturity Paul calls and challenges the Corinthians on their childishness on this issue look again at verse 20 brethren be not children in understanding howbeit in malice be ye children but in understanding be men when it came to the issue of the use of tongues, Paul said this was an area where the Corinthian church needed to grow up. They needed to be more mature. And specifically, more mature when it comes to understanding. This is something we talked about last week. The intended purpose of all the speaking gifts has always been understanding. Communication, and therefore understanding, and in fact, the word understanding, or a, a form of the word understanding, is used nine times in the first part of this chapter, from verses 
1 through, through 25, through 21, actually. So it was important that they grow up in this area and quit viewing spiritual gifts through the lens of a child. Now, it's not the first time that Paul has used this type of language in this epistle to describe this church. Remember, this is a, a book of rebuke. He called them babes in chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. He said, And I, brethren, cannot speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. It was obviously related to their carnality. Well, their carnality was clearly seen in their abuse of spiritual gifts as well. So use that same type of language in our passage. Then in chapter 13 and verse 11, he chides them this way, When I was a child, I spake as a child, when I, and I understood as a child. I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. Insinuating that they hadn't put away childish things, and he's making that same accusation here in chapter 14. He's saying when it comes to this issue, quit acting like a child. Because this is not child's play. So do not be naive like a child and just assume that everything you hear is the biblical gift of tongues because it is not. No, see if it matches Scripture. And listen, that is what we need to do as well because it involves maturity. It involves being perfected in the Word of God. And if you're not mature, if you're not of a certain age when it comes to Bible understanding, then you are susceptible to error. And it's interesting because 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20, Paul says, in understanding, they need to be like men. And, and the Greek word that's translated men here is found 19 times in your King James Bible. And this is the only time it is translated this way, as men. 17 times is translated as perfect. And then one time it is translated a full age. So the only way to be a man in, of understanding is to be perfected in the Word of God. It is to have a handle on how to rightly divide the Word of truth. And we know that the, the biblical definition of perfect is not sinlessness, it's, it's maturity, it's being complete. And that's what Paul means in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, when he says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for what? For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction of righteousness, that the man of God may be what? Perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. That the man of God may be perfect, that the man of God may be a man. And when you're not a man, you're a child. Paul's call to the Corinthians was to not be children. It was a call to maturity. And I think God's call to us today is the same. It's something we need to pay attention to because we see this same teaching in other places in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, the author says, For when the time uh, ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For every one that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. The strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, that are perfect, that are a man. Even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Strong meat, having a good handle on the word of God, it belongeth to them who are men and who are mature, 
who are perfected in the word of God. It's the, that is the exact same word we see in 1 Corinthians 14, 20. And then tying it back to spiritual gifts, look at what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 14. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth, because of that, be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. See what Paul is trying to get across. Don't be children when it comes to understanding. Don't be tossed about by every wind of doctrine. When you hear somebody say something, don't just believe it. See what the Word of God has to say. And the solution is being a perfect man, a mature man, a complete man. It is the same word over and over. So let me read Ephesians 4.13 for you again with just a slight twist. Listen to it this way. Till we all come in the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a man's man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Okay, now ladies, you can listen in for a second, but this next statement is to the men. So men, let me ask you, do you want to be a man's man? Do you want to be a manly man? The only path, according to the Bible, is through the Bible. If you do not desire to be a student of the Word of God, then you cannot obtain spiritual maturity. And ladies, if you're looking for a real man, if you're looking for a manly man, start there. In Philippians 3.15, we read, Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if anything ye... If, any, if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. And what Paul was talking about was Christ-mindedness. It's, it's defined in verses 7 through 14, and we won't take the time to read all that, but let me provide the summary out of verse 8. Philippians 3.8, Paul says, He counted all things in his life as nothing in exchange for what he calls the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Man, that is a beautiful phrase. The excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. I'd love to stay there for a while. But the point is being perfectly minded is tied to understanding Christ's excellency. And that comes through knowledge. That comes through doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness because that provides maturity and that is exactly what is needed when it comes to understanding the issue of tongues. Now, he said it was okay to be children when it comes to malice. And malice just means evil. It's okay to be a child in evil. It's not an understanding. So what he is saying is, don't be skilled in evil things. Don't be skilled or mature in deceit. And that's the shame of the brand of Christianity found in first century Corinth. But I believe it's the same brand of Christianity found in 21st century America. Because by and large, we are experts in deceit and woefully ignorant of the Bible. 
And I hope that doesn't describe you personally, but I know that it describes many in the church today generally. But it's not how it's supposed to be. Romans 16, 19 says, For your obedience has come abroad unto all men. I am glad, therefore, on your behalf. But yet I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. Be wise in the word and innocent in injury. Don't harm, don't deceive, and don't be deceived. That was the charge to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14, 20. He told the ones that were being fooled to study up and to be mature. And he told the ones that were being deceitful to be more innocent and stop deceiving. And then Paul challenged everyone to know what the scriptures say about the issue. Because they could have known. And that is the point of all of this. You see, Old Testament scripture had already given them the answer on this issue. And that leads us to our second point. Because what Paul does next is hearken back to the Old Testament and provides them a clarity of meaning. He provides for them clarity in the meaning of tongues. What exactly are they for? And this gets to the main point of Paul's message. And really what we've worked toward for three weeks now. Look at verse 21. In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that will they not hear me, saith the Lord. Wherefore, wherefore, where we came from, now, now pay attention to what I'm saying. Tongues are for a sign. Not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. For prophesying serveth not them that believeth not, but for them which believe. So now if you don't get anything else, if you never learn anything, about, anything else about tongues, here's what you have to understand. Tongues are for a sign, not to them, what? That believe. But it's a sign to them that believe not. You have to get that. That statement alone is the heart of this 14th chapter. And that statement in and of itself should call any current so-called tongues to task to deal with the reality of that statement. It couldn't be any simpler. It is for a sign to them that believe not. So let's break this down. I'm going to do a little Bible study here for a little bit. Because Paul says you need to be more mature. Because you should have known what the law says about this. And when he says law, he, he doesn't mean the Pentateuch or the specifics of what is found in those first five books of the Bible. In fact, many times in your Bible, the law is a reference to the Old Testament in general. You see this in a number of places, all throughout the Psalms, for example. You see it in Romans chapter 3. We don't have the time to go there, but if you look at verses 9 through 18 in Romans chapter 3, you will find many, many quotes out of the Psalms. And then in verse 19, Paul says, we know what things the law saith, speaking of those things that he just talked about, speaking of those writings that he had quoted from the Psalms. And so when Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 14, 21, in the law it is written, he's actually referring to Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. And so we're going to read what those say. Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. It says, For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. To whom he said, This is the rest wherewith ye may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. 
okay, so we're going to begin putting some things together. And when we put things together, I, I trust it's going to bring some clarity. The gift of tongues is a sign, but a sign to whom? Well, the quotation from Isaiah 28 makes it clear. This people was God's people. It was undoubtedly the nation of Israel. That is who Isaiah was sent to. He was sent to warn his own people. And Isaiah was speaking to the whole nation of Israel at a time when the Assyrians, historically, the Assyrians were knocking at the doors of Jerusalem, threatening to capture it. And through the prophet Isaiah, God is warning the nation that if they do not repent and turn from their evil and idolatrous ways, they are going to hear foreigners talking in the holy city. They're going to hear Gentile tongues filling the streets of Jerusalem. It was a warning to Israel to face up to their relationship with God, lest he turn from them to the Gentile world. This wasn't the only time that Israel had been warned. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 28, in verse 49, the Bible says, The Lord shall bring a nation against thee from far, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flieth, a nation whose tongue thou shalt not understand. So it wasn't the first time, but also wasn't the last time. Jeremiah warned them too. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 15. It says, Lo, I will bring a nation upon you from far, O house of Israel, saith the Lord. It is a mighty nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language thou knowest not, neither understandest what they say. So we have Isaiah, we have Deuteronomy, we have Jeremiah. Isaiah is the main one because it's what Paul references. And he says, if you hadn't been immature in the word, you would have known what tongues are for. The scriptures had the answer for you all along. They are a warning to Jews who don't believe in me, who have rejected me, that my judgment is coming and that things are changing. So they better beware. The Gentiles are about to be the focus. The Gentiles are going to take over the land. And that is exactly what happened. You see it historically, you see it in the Old Testament. Not long after Isaiah wrote these words, the northern kingdom of Israel was captured by the Assyrians. You could document this historically. You see it in the Bible. Then some 135 years later, the southern kingdom of Judah was captured by the Babylonians. And tongues, Gentile languages, were spoken throughout Israel. So the so it was prophesied and it happened. And God turned the focus away from the nation of Israel for a time. And now Gentiles were in control. Okay, so that's the Old Testament. It's what Paul referenced. But do we know anything else specifically about signs in the New Testament? As a matter of fact, we do. We already know from our study of 1 Corinthians who signs are for. And not surprisingly, it's the Jews. 1 Corinthians 1.22. For the Jews require a sign. And the Greeks seek after wisdom. Jesus even dealt with this in dealing with his own people, the Jews. Matthew 12, 38. So for certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. And so we see some amazing consistency in our Bible. And with consistency comes clarity. So let me try to bring this together for you. And while I'm bringing it together, I want you to pay close attention. Give me at least a minute. 
especially for all you Bible students out there, because I'm about to teach you something. Because what we had in the Old Testament, prophesied by Isaiah, was a physical kingdom being turned over physically to the Gentiles because of the rejection of the Jews. The Jews had rejected God. What we see physically in the Old Testament is the turnover of a physical kingdom. And the sign for that happening was tongues. And now some of you should know where I'm going with this. Some of you don't. It's okay. And when we get to the New Testament, when we get to 1 Corinthians written in 57 AD or so, guess what is happening? We have a spiritual kingdom that is being turned over spiritually to the Gentiles because of the rejection of the Jews. And the sign for that happening was tongues. Jesus had been rejected by his people, and now a new thing was starting. It was a New Testament, a new covenant that the Gentiles could get in on. So you see, in both cases, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it was a sign to unbelieving Jews that judgment was coming and that things were changing. Dispensationally, they were changing. Historically, they were changing. It's why you need to understand how to rightly divide your Bible. And like Paul said, it was for a sign. And that's an important word the Bible uses, and it provides insight for what all this means for us today. I want you to think for a second. Imagine you're going to leave church today, and you're going to drive to Cleveland. And you're going to go up I-77 all the way to Cleveland. And when you leave church and, and you, you get on the highway, you're going to start seeing some road signs that tell you how many miles it is to Canton and how many miles it is to Akron and how many miles it is to Cleveland. And, and when you get to Canton, you'll see a sign that tells you you've arrived. You know, welcome to Canton or whatever. And then you get to Akron and the same thing. You're going to see a similar sign. But when you pass Canton and you pass Akron, and you're still on I-77 on your way to Cleveland, guess what signs you won't see anymore? You won't see any more signs that tell you how far it is to Canton or Akron. You won't see any more signs telling you that you've arrived in Canton or Akron. And why is that? Because it's past. Once, the, once, the sign, once what the sign is pointing to has passed, you don't need the sign anymore. And that's why the sign gifts have ceased, and that's why tongues have ceased, just as Paul said they would in 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Because what they are pointing to has passed. The judgment came, and God moved to the Gentiles, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, both physically and spiritually, both as it related to the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. And God changed the game. And this is important to understand because the real purpose of tongues was never to teach. It was always to point. To point to what God was doing. But then God did it. 
And when God did it, there was no more need for the sign. Now, interestingly enough, tongues will come back in the tribulation as a sign that things are changing and a kingdom is coming. But I'll let you do that study on your own. But the purpose of tongues was never to teach. It has always been to point. It is prophecy that is to teach. That's why verse 22 ends like it does. The prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. Prophecy is to edify believers. We saw that in verse 3. We saw that in verse 4. We've seen that for a few weeks now, even back to chapter 12. It's for edification. And edification comes through teaching. But tongues were assigned to unbelieving Jews. That's what the Bible says. Attached irretrievably to specific points in history. They served to show that Christianity was not to be distinctly Jewish, but worldwide. They served to substantiate and authenticate the speakers and messengers who brought that message. And they served to show Israel that they had again rejected God in unbelief and apostasy. And so while tongues were still even valid and hadn't ceased yet at, at the time that Paul was writing this epistle of 1 Corinthians, because things were still changing, they hadn't fully switched over yet, so they were still valid, they were running out of time. And they really, I mean, as Paul clearly explains and says over and over, they really weren't even profitable for the church at this point. They needed interpretation. That was problematic. That was the only way they could edify, was through proper interpretation. That was problematic, according to Paul. So they were already running out of time. And they were already, a, you know, 57-ish A.D., not really profitable for the church. So you see, there is clarity of meaning. We can learn what all this means. But Satan doesn't want that. So what we see today in, in, in many charismatic circles or, or charismatic churches is a counterfeit of what God had established. And that counterfeit leads to confusion, which can be very dangerous. So don't be confused. In understanding, be men. And that leads to our third point of study this morning. So what we see Paul explain next is that understanding tongues is important because there is a connection to ministry. There's a connection. This all connects to something really important. It connects to the ministry we have in Christ. Look at what he says starting in verse 23. If therefore the whole church be come together into one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, will they not say that ye are all mad? But if all prophesy, and there come in one that believeth not, or one unlearned, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all, and thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. You see, for us, this is all connected to ministry. And for those Corinthians, Paul is saying, listen, guys, this is connected to ministry. There are ministry implications. And the ministry implications of people speaking in tongues in the church is confusion. People thinking that the, the church is crazy. And that the people in there are crazy. That's obviously not what we want. When an unbeliever comes among us, we want them to be turned on to the gospel, not turned off. 
not turned away. And I should point out, when Paul says an unbeliever here, um, it's no contradiction to what he said earlier, where that, that, that tongues are for a sign to unbelievers, and now he's saying, you know, if everybody's speaking in tongues and an unbeliever comes in, uh, you know, they're going to think you're mad. Well, that's no contradiction. I mean, as we've already established, what he was talking about in, in verse 22, they were assigned to unbelievers being Jews, specifically. And so what we have in verse 23, the context is the Gentile church and Gentile unbelievers. And most unbelieving Gentiles are, are turned off by, by the gift of tongues, and they're turned off because the sign has no context of meaning for them. It doesn't edify because it doesn't teach. And so Paul said, listen, if people hear you all speaking in tongues in the church, they will think you're mad. They will think you've lost your ever-loving mind. And, and folks even thought that at Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, where tongues were a good thing, for God was using them. For a very specific meaning, after the disciples spoke in tongues, Acts 2.13 says, Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. And they thought they were drunk. So Paul is telling the Corinthians that while it's still lawful, <clears throat> for practical purposes, it's time to bring this thing to a landing. It's time to land this plane. And it's time for it to stop. And again, even though the sign may still officially have been valid, at that time. Paul is saying, why use it now? Allow dignity to take the place of your liberty. And we'll talk more about that next week when we talk about order. But when dignity takes the place of liberty, something amazing happens. And listen, that statement in and of itself, dignity taking the place of liberty, is always true. But it had a particular truth attached to it in, in the context of 1 Corinthians. Because in that context, Dignity replacing liberty equaled preaching replacing tongues. And Paul was saying, listen, guys, it's been a good run here, but it's time for that to happen. It's time for us to shut this thing down. And when biblical preaching takes the center place of a church, now the Holy Spirit is truly freed to do His work. Look at verse 24 again. But if all prophesy, and there come in one that believeth not, or one unlearned, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all. And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. Listen, that's the real power. I mean, look at some of the verbs used in those two verses. Convinced, judged, falling, worship, report. Those are incredible words and in an incredible thing happens under the preaching of the Word of God. And what's interesting is this was true even when speaking in tongues was something that God was orchestrating. So we just talked about Pentecost, right? Acts chapter 2, one of the three times in the book of Acts that, that you see tongues being used. And so you see it at the beginning. And then in, in verse 14, if, you know, we just read verse 13, where others mocked. And they thought they were drunk. Well, what we see then, in starting in verse 14 is Peter gets up and he starts preaching. And it leads to that very popular verse, Acts 2.38. It says, you know, repent and be baptized. One of the most misunderstood and misused 
verses in the Bible today. Had a very specific meaning for that time. But so he, he, he preaches this powerful message to the Jews. And then in verse, uh, verse 37, after Peter preaches his sermon, look at what it says in verse 37. And now when they heard this, the listeners, they were pricked in their heart. And they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And that's why Peter gives his answer in verse 38. But it's when they heard the preaching that they were pricked in their heart. The, the speaking in tongues was a sign that pointed them to something. That was telling them that God was changing. But even on that day, it was the preaching of the word of God that convicted and convinced them. It was the preaching of the word of God that pricked their hearts. Because the secrets of their hearts were made manifest. And they were convicted to do something about it. And that's because the word of God will always do the work. Isaiah 55 says it will never return void, but it accomplishes the purpose that God has for it when he sends it out. So that means it can penetrate your heart like no other thing in the world can. And it will leave you open and exposed and in awe of the one who is doing the opening and exposing. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That, that's an interesting phrase that you should study one time, the thoughts of the heart. Sorry, that's a different thing. That's interesting. Uh, verse 13, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, now, but all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The word of God opens you up and it exposes you for who you are. You see, brothers and sisters, when people hear the Spirit of God speaking the mind of God, they are often convinced and convicted. And they see themselves as they are sinners guilty in front of a holy God. And we see this all the time at FBC. We see this through the ministries of FBC. People come to Christ in this congregation while we are teaching the Christians. And they hear the truth, and the Spirit brings it home to their hearts, and they are converted. And that's what Paul said would happen. And beloved, don't we want that to be the case? Don't we want the people who come into our fellowship to see God? Don't we want there to be clarity of speech? I think we do. We want there to be a certain sound. Nothing uncertain like Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 14.8. An uncertain sound leads to confusion. And God's not the author of confusion. We'll talk about that next week. God has not called us to confusion. And so because of that, we are obedient to God's pattern. So like it or not, we preach the Bible. And I trust that you're here because you like it. But we know that not everyone does. And to that I say, let God be true and every man a liar. I say the word of God is a more sure word of prophecy. I say thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. I say the words of the Lord are pure words. I say thy word is truth. I say the word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I say thy testimonies are also my delight and my counselors. I say forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. 
And I say all that because the Word of God says all that about itself. And that's what we preach. That's it. Not our private interpretation, not our experience, and not even our emotion. We preach the Bible because that's what God tells us to do. And what a thrilling promise to a church that exalts the preaching of God's Word, that the impact will be tremendous. Even if we don't see it, the Word of God will never return void. God will be glorified. So please listen to me now. The church's most compelling testimony is not tongues. It is not miraculous healings. No matter how many people anybody says are healed when you walk in a room, that's not the church's most compelling testimony. It's not even prayer meetings or worship services. The church's most compelling testimony is the clear proclamation of the powerful Word of God. That's it. That's the ministry we've been given. And that's the ministry we have to take heed to. To preach it unashamedly and unapologetically. So tongues are a thing. But prophecy is a better thing because the ministry is too important and the ministry implications are too great. Now as we begin to wind this down and and bring this to a close, I want to try to make this practical for you. We've talked about some academic things as it relates to the spiritual gifts of tongues. We did a little bit of Bible study there at particularly in verses 21 and 22, and looked at what we see in the Old Testament and what God does through dispensational shifts. And, 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 I, and I hope you learned some stuff. Uh, I, re- I really do. I hope, I hope you th- that you found that interesting. And we've seen that God does have an explicit purpose for tongues. And they were assigned to an unbelieving people that God was bringing judgment. He was changing the game. I hope the Word of God brought some clarity of meaning to you on that issue. But, listen, more than all that, I hope what you saw, I hope what you will begin to see, is that God has an explicit purpose for your life. Because God wants that to be clear as well. And that explicit purpose involves a call to maturity. And it is always connected to ministry. So let me ask you, are you mature in the Lord? Are you a man in understanding? Or are you a man in malice? Do you have a handle on what the Word of God teaches? Are you just able to deceive others into thinking that you care? You see, the stuff that that we've talked about today is important to the Lord. His Word is the most important thing we have in this life. And if you don't know how to use it, it's okay. Just start the process today. Sign up for personal discipleship. Commit to join MTT next fall. Commit to spending every day with the Lord in His Word. Make those commitments and then follow through on them. You've been called to maturity this morning. And you've been called to maturity because you have a place in this ministry. There's always a connection to ministry. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to Himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Listen, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you are part of the us. 
He's given to us. So how have you been doing in that role as an ambassador, if you read down through verse 21? How are you doing in the role of an ambassador for Christ? We know that the two things that will last forever, what are they? They're the word of God, the souls of men. And you'll never love the souls of men. You'll never, you'll never love the ministry that you've been given. And you'll never fulfill it faithfully until you learn to love the Word of God. And grow, because why does it matter if, unless you believe wholeheartedly what the Word of God has to say? You'll never love the souls of men. You'll never love ministry like you should until you love the Word of God. They're always tied. They're always tied together. And that's the explicit purpose that God has for your life. He's called you to be a part of that ministry. And he's called you to love his book. So grow in maturity so that you'll f- fulfill that calling. And if you want to live your best life now, that's it. Learn to love the word of God as you grow and mature in it. And then give it out to every person you know. And if you're not doing that, will you start today? Make today a day of change and allow God to use this message on tongues to change your tomorrow. And I'm going to pray, and the praise team is going to come back up. We're going to close out the service with one final song. And this is your time to commune with the Lord. And if there's something you need to get right with Him, man, do it. Take the time to do it today. He's worth it. His Word is worth it. The souls you come in contact with every day need it. And they need you to do it. So use this time of worship to get your heart right with the Lord if you need to. Commit to learning His Word. Or if you already know His Word, just commit to continue in His Word. Commit to continue to love it. To choose to get up every morning and give yourself to it. And to spend time in it. And to pattern your life after what it said. Man, there's nothing else worth doing. When you do that, when you love God as you love his word, man, you will naturally love others. As you know the implications. You know how, how much the costs are. You know how important this is. And so what God's given us, you know, you know, to whom much is given, much hath he required. And we've been given his word, and, and our responsibility is to take the time to learn it so that we can connect it to the ministry that he's given us. So commit to joining in on the explicit purpose that God has for your life. Do it in your home, do it in this church, do it wherever you work, wherever you live. Because there's nothing else worth doing. What a miserable life if it's just we go through and do what we do and, and we end and it's over. No, man, it's about more. And it's based on his word, and it's based on giving that and sharing that to others. That's the explicit purpose. God has an explicit purpose for everything, and he has an explicit purpose for you. I hope you see it. Dear Heavenly Father,